0: We really have to start to make sure we're educating and helping all roles within healthcare understand that you all play a major role no matter what your title is, no matter who you are, what you look like. You are really a part of this journey of reducing suffering for patients. It is your role to reduce suffering, not add to it.
1: We all need to be mindful of our words, which can have far-reaching impact way beyond our intention. I'm Rebecca Corrin, and this is Moments Move Us, a people-first podcast unlocking the power of meaningful moments by bringing you stories that inspire. Our guest, Tina Bennett, first experienced the power of small moments as a patient herself en route to the hospital following a major car accident. Now, 20 years later, Tina serves as the chief experience officer at Yale New Haven Health. Looking back, Tina recalls how a few words uttered carelessly by a paramedic may have lasted only a few seconds, but has stuck with Tina ever since. Tina's passion is palpable as she shares about teaching her team that they can make a lasting impression no matter their role and no matter how brief the interaction. She preaches the message every person, every time. She believes in order to build a healthcare system that truly helps patients be well, you have to start with the people and their interaction with one another. And in fact, that's how Tina got started in patient experience. It was with a meaningful conversation with a mentor that started her journey. Hi, Tina. Thank you so much for being on Moments Move Us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you today. I'm so happy that you're here. For our listeners, I would love us to kick off and hear a little bit about how you got started in healthcare and how you got to this moment. Wow. So I have quite a story. So I originally wanted to be
0: in television production, so I was in school for communications and My junior year of college, I was in a bad car accident, and in that car accident, one of the injuries that I sustained was a broken wrist, and in addition to over 100 stitches in my face, you know, I'm a junior in college, and I had been working at a retirement center, so that was like my high school, college job. And it was a 60 bed facility that had a healthcare center inside of the retirement center. And because of the broken wrist, I'm right-handed. It was my right wrist. I couldn't do my normal work. And I had to temporarily withdraw from school, which was devastating. And I remember even asking like, can I have some assistance? And they're like, we don't do that when it's a temporary injury and so on. So I end up calling my employer, my manager, and I'm like, I have to do something. I can't be idle. I have to do something. So I called my manager and I said, I know, you know, I was a dietary aide. So you need both of your hands, of course. And she allowed me to come to work with my hard cast up to my shoulder and learn her work and help her with her work. And so I was able to work the mouse on the computer with my left hand, and I would do menus and help her with her schedules and all her administrative tasks. I would do things on the computer. And it was right then where kind of a light bulb went off, where it was like, I like this. And being able to work with her firsthand, I saw what it took to be a leader in healthcare. And that was really where the journey started. That accident happened in 2002. By 2005, I was already on my path of working at Yale New Haven Health, which was, in my opinion, a bigger institution because I was at a 60-bed facility. I was already. So what I ended up doing was going back for my master's immediately. So once I was able to graduate on time, because I told you I had to withdraw. Wow. And you still graduated on time. I was able to graduate on time. So once I was able to write again, I took summer classes. So this accident happened in like January. By the summer, I took enough summer classes to get back on track so that I was able to graduate on time. And then I was like, I want to go to, you know, get my master's for health administration just after having that time and that experience with my manager. And so once I started to pursue that master's, I knew that that place wasn't going to be big enough for me and what I knew I wanted to be able to offer as a healthcare care leader. So I applied to work at Yale New Haven Health <laughs> and back then it felt like such a huge organization, right? And no, the rest is history. I've been there 17 years and don't try to count my age, but it's been (laughs) 17 amazing years, but that's how it all started. And I'll tell you this right now, I'm in patient experience and I'll tell you a little bit about that. But in that accident, there was a few things that stuck with me that really, in addition to the exposure with my manager of this health center, when I got hit, a guy T-boned me. And so you know, I see all the glass went inside of my face. And when the ambulance driver came, he said, "Where do you want to go?" And I named where I wanted to go. And right then it was like, "Wow, people have the ability to choose where they want to go. The other thing that happened in that first few minutes, when I got inside of the ambulance, I was like, is my face cut? Am I scarred for life? And he said, yes. And I was like, wow, why would he tell me that? And so again, the importance of communication and having those skills and knowing how to interact with people, that was another thing that I learned in that short amount of time. And then when I got to the actual hospital, I had during the accident, I was on my way to get my hair done. And so I had a hat on my head and I had just washed my hair and it was in its natural state and the hat got knocked off my head from the impact. So when I got to the hospital, I like felt my head and I'm like, oh my God, my head is gone. My hair is all over my head. And I was worried about how I looked. And so again, when you're thinking about healthcare and the patient experience, there are people like me who are worried about that and worried about the care they might receive because they may not look the part. Now, I'm what I believe was a smart college student, but with that hat and my hair all over my head and how I looked, I was worried. And so I really feel like today and where I am was full circle because now being in patient experience and having the ability to take that experience and take those parts of that story and be a part of the change to transition healthcare, to be mindful of those things and treat people differently is to me the best opportunity ever. So it made such a unfortunate event, you know, 20 years ago it means something. And honestly, I wouldn't change it.
1: Wow. It sounds like one of those life-changing experiences where you got to see firsthand the power of, and to feel the power of choice in that moment when they asked you that, The, the power of vulnerability where you're like, I don't know what, I mean, I just imagine a young college student, I mean, your face is cut. It was a traumatic accident you were really scared, I would imagine. And for someone to say that to you about like, yeah, you're going to be scarred forever when they didn't really know that. And it's definitely not something you want to hear in that moment. And then also to, to the piece about sort of feeling that you're going to be cared for well, regardless of how you look and present. And it's like, you know, and I imagine that that you probably had a lot of fear in that moment when you first got to the hospital with all these sort of things spinning in your head as a young adult, you know, how do you know how to navigate that in that moment?
0: It was one of the most challenging parts of my entire life, but such a pivotal moment in that I realized how resilient I am and could be. And so now as things happen, it's like, oh, you know, (laughs) I could get through that. You know, you kind of know what you're able to get through. You know, you you realize that at, to your point, that vulnerable young age, being able to get through that, you know, you'll make it to the other side. And so that was what was great out of what was such a bad situation. It was what
1: it showed me though. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the next six months after that. Like you were saying, you know, you, you had to withdraw from school for a period of time, but then by the summer you were ramped up taking as many classes as possible. And you talk about resilience. Clearly you're an extremely resilient person. How did you get to be this way? How are you able to take this moment? And especially at such a young age and really keep, not just keep trekking forward, but propel yourself on the trajectory that you were going before without really a pause? I think that's a great
0: question. And I've asked myself that as well. And, you know, I'll tell you that six months wasn't easy, but knowing that I had a goal and my goal, right, was finish school. One of the biggest fears I had, and, I, and I'm sure you heard this before, people are like, if you stop, you will never go back, Right. And that was the immediate, so when I was told I had to like withdraw, immediately I thought about that, like, oh my God, statistically, this is not good. And so what can I do? What can I do to keep propelling myself, even though I'm not in school, what can I do to keep my momentum up? And that was go right back to work, right? Even though it wasn't my normal capacity, but it was what can I do to feel like my normal self? Because I had to keep my face covered. Because it would heal darker from the sun. I got this hard cast. So there was a lot going on in that six months, but it was stay focused in what can you do? And to be honest, that's one of my models in life today, whether you're at work or at home, people are like, I can't, but what can you do? There are a number of things we can't do, but what can you do? Right now I can go to work and do light duty. I can learn, I can read. You know, there are things that I could do to get back to myself and get back on track. But one of the things I thought about where did the strength come from? I think I would say my mom was a single mom. My dad died when I was four. And so growing up with just my mom and the way in which she took such great care of me I didn't feel like it was just us, right? I didn't feel like I was missing anything. And so I just saw her be consistently resilient. I had a very stable upbringing. And so I'm sure there were things that may have knocked her off a track, but I never saw that. And so I think having her as an example who always showed this great deal of strength taught me in these difficult moments how to do that and how to be that. And so I think that that was probably where I got it from. And then it turned into like confidence where, you know, I think from her being the the nurturing and resilient mom, I had confidence that I could do it, that you can do it by yourself. If someone helps you, it's a bonus. But I learned early on, plan to have to do this yourself. You know, one of the things I've shared with people, like in my family, I was the first of like everything. So what I mean by that is first college, first to buy property, first to get a driver's license. So my mom, and I was the youngest. So I have a brother and sister who are 18 years and 19 years older than me. And my mom never drove. And so I remember by 18, I want a driver's license. And there's nobody, you need a car to get through the tests.
1: That's right. You can't just show up for the test without an automobile to drive you
0: there. And there was no car in my family. So I borrowed a neighbor's car. And so it was like, you learn how to problem solve. You learn how to figure it out. You know, shout out to Miss Brown, rest in peace. But she was the neighbor. I borrowed her car. And so. That was then, right? That was at that young age where I have to figure out how to get it done. And so, even that has been, you know, a moment that has carried out through my life today where it's like, you might have to get creative. It may not be easy. And so, you may just have to figure it out, like, you know, that story and like graduating on time. And I had to get creative to get it done and to be here today.
1: Resourcefulness is something that I think can really help people as a leader because there are so many challenges that we face and knowing what levers to pull, who to bring in, where to go. But I think at the end of the day, what you're getting at is it's that ability to know, yeah, maybe there are a lot of challenges today. Maybe with what we're dealing with, this is a pretty massive issue, but what can we start to chip away at and make progress towards? Because if we let the big sort of things keep us that are our obstacles that may be blockers in a moment. If we don't chip away at those, then they're going to stay there. But if we can make strides towards that, that's how we knock down those big barriers.
0: Absolutely. And you said the right word, resourcefulness. And I have to give credit to there are people who were helpful and supportive and I think it's important for us to always be able to set our pride aside, too, and to know that you may have to ask for help. I may have to ask Ms. Brown to borrow her car. You may not want to. You may be embarrassed by that. But had I not, you know, I wouldn't have got that goal, right, accomplished. And so throughout my career and my journey, you know, I think mentorship has been really important. And that's a resource. And a lot of times we don't know everything and we have to be comfortable understanding that and being open to guidance and input from others. And so I think that has played a major role in my success and why I'm where I am today, because I was never afraid to ask that question, to call that job and say, I know I'm all banged up. I have one arm that I can use, but Can I come and do something? And then while I was there, ask the right questions, you know, ask thoughtful questions. And I remember, you know, when deciding to go back for my master's and being thoughtful about what that should be and getting input from others because I didn't know everything. Is this the right move to make? And so I think that's been helpful throughout my career. I've had multiple mentors and they've been men, women. They've been people within my organization, outside. It's important to have diverse mentors as well that can really help pour into you and, and give you different perspectives.
1: I think about what you're sharing and it's a diversity of mindset and of, like you said, I love how you said pour into you. I think that's, that's just a beautiful image as you, as you kind of think about that. And I think about sort of the challenge of where we are today as a healthcare industry and all of the things that COVID revealed and the fabric that really makes up healthcare and how we need to be addressing experience. And I know this is sort of where you live right now in the experience world. We need to be looking at experience holistically from all of its different sides. And those sides are diverse, you know, in so many ways. And I'm curious about how you kind of go about addressing experience right now and knowing where to focus and how, because there are clearly major challenges that we have. How do you start chipping away at those? I think the foundation is people.
0: And when you mention how challenging of a time we're in, it really boils down to making sure we start with our people. And one of the models that we have is every person, every time. And so what that means is not just every patient, it's every loved one, it's every staff member, it's focusing on the people because well-being is critical to this journey. And I think we have to start there and making sure that we understand what the priorities are And if our people aren't well, the people who provide for our patients, then they can't help our patients be well. So that's really truly the foundation. I think that's the best way to start chipping away at it. And, you know, one of the things that we've been focused on is, you know, when it comes to that wellness, but also providing tools to be successful. I think it's very difficult to ask, you know, and to assume that we're able to, to provide an exceptional experience without the tools, without the knowledge. I'll share a quick story with you. Almost six weeks ago, I broke my ankle. Oh no, I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you. Complete bummer, right? I have a family, two small kids. I have work. You have all these things that you're worried about. The moment they said your ankle's broken and i end up going to an urgent care that's not my organization because it was a friday night when it happened and so on and the provider was great and she said somebody's going to come in and put a hard cast on your ankle and so two two young ladies came into my room and the first thing they said was they didn't introduce themselves they came into the room and said you need to lay on your stomach i said Lay on my stomach. Now, my ankle was the size of my thigh, swolling, and throbbing. I'm, oh my gosh, lay on my stomach. Yeah, lay on your stomach. Okay. So I did with no help. They wouldn't help me. And then they said, I need you to put your foot back up. So they wanted me to sit on my stomach and put my foot up. And I was like, huh? And then, so as I was trying to do it on my own, I said, ouch. And one of them said, oh, it's going to hurt worse than this. And so I'm like, oh my gosh. And then one said to the other, she was like, do you normally leave the toes out or do you put the toes in? And I'm like, wow, they don't even have a clear plan or a standardized way they do this. Like you don't have a best
1: practice? Yes, and in front of the patient, no less, where you're sitting there just thinking, okay, so now I have no idea whether these people have done this before (laughs) you don't know what to recommend.
0: And now I feel unsafe, right? And so then one says to the other, geez, this room is too small to do this in. And so they're venting right in front of me and I'm on my stomach and I look over at my husband and I'm like, is this just me? Or, you know, cause you have a, you're, you're in pain. You know, maybe it's me being overly sensitive and he's the calm one. And when I looked at him and he looked back at me, he's like, no, this is bad. And I remember when they left the room, I started to get up and my husband was like, I don't think they're done. And I was like, I thought they were done, but they didn't say anything. So I stayed there. They came back and handed me crutches and I was like, oh, you're done. They were like, yeah, we're done. And I had to get up on my own. So, you know, when I think of your question and I think about the experience and I think about tools, I had anxiety, fear, all the things that was going on in addition to the pain. And I have a high threshold for pain, but that was a lot. And so on top of all of that, you now feel like a burden on these caregivers. And it added on to everything I was feeling. It made me more emotional. And I am the chief experience officer at a healthcare facility over patient experience. And it still made me sad. But the reason I share this is tools and education. They had no idea, I believe, that I was listening that I was feeling, that I was observing. And they didn't know. I don't think that was intentional. And so we really have to start to make sure we're educating and helping all roles within healthcare understand that you all play a major role no matter what your title is, no matter who you are, what you look like. You are really a part of this journey of reducing suffering for patients. It is your role to reduce suffering, not add to it. And I think that that is a part of this work. That is a part of this journey, helping everyone really understand that.
1: I can't help but have like a flashback to a personal experience that I had where, and I can feel this moment very similarly to the way you shared it about your ankle experience where I was nine weeks pregnant, I got an infection in my leg and they were wheeling me into to get some like imaging and some things done and as I'm being, being wheeled down, the person who's wheeling me says, oh, so you were pregnant and I'm just laying there. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? I was, I think I still am. I had like 103 fever or something. And he was like, oh, okay. And I just, I'll never forget that moment because I remember thinking he knows something. I don't know. I'm not pregnant anymore. And they're not telling me. And like, it makes me terrible to think about it because it was that def- it was a defining moment for me. Cause I was like, wow, like, even though this is someone just transporting me, they have such a strong, and this was before, this was a long time ago, my son's seven now, thank God. But you know, really it was that moment where I had so much fear. And then during the, t- the imaging and everything, I was so scared because I thought that like you know, he was gone. And the experience just, I love how you said every person, every time, because it's not only about, first of all, it seems clear. It's the moment about someone wrapping your leg in a hard cast. That seems very clear. Like that's delivering care. But I think all these other moments, that's delivering care too. It's all about the care experience from the moment you get into that parking lot.
0: Absolutely. And even before that, right? When you're able, when you make a phone call trying to set up an appointment or get somewhere, you're absolutely right. Right. It's, you know, the journey starts right away and it's all those different pieces and whether the person answers the phone with compassion, right? To so when you leave and you're rolled out and, you know, your experiences. You know, I led patient transport for almost eight years of my career. And, you know, people said to me, like, what made you work in patient experience afterwards? So I went from being a director of patient transport and I had community outreach programs with it. And then I went straight into, patient experience. And they say, you know, what made you do that? I said, I was always in patient experience, no matter what role I was in, no matter what team I was leading, it was patient experience. And your story just really resonates with what I had focused on with really trying to transform that culture of you are not just moving patients from A to B. You are really the first impression. You could be the last impression when you're discharging but it was just the words that he said to you that completely impacted your whole experience. And so, I think a lot of people think, well, it's the transport, it's just moving. It's not. It's what you say to me. It's how, you know, you 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 prep me for every single bump we might go over. And so, it's the surgeons, it's the food, it's the it's everything. It's how clean the place is. Every piece is a part of the experience. And I think to your original question, when we all really start to realize, again, the foundation of the people, when people start to understand their value. And so that was the real work that I did You know, in patient transport was really helping the, the transporters understand you are as important as the surgeon you are a part of this journey of number one, reducing suffering, but promoting healing. And for example, quiet. When you're in the hospital, you need to be quiet to heal. Anyone can impact quiet. So every single piece is a part of healing. Down to engineering, coming in to fix lighting and things of that nature. Down to flooring. Before I led patient transport, I was a part of this group we were building. It was this 15-story, state-of-the-art cancer center. And I was a part of the planning committee and environmental services to pick the flooring. We wanted all green chemicals. We wanted quiet flooring. It was things like that. And so even that's the experience.
1: So true. Starts with the building blocks, literally, of the place, the facility, and the physical structure. Wow. I love how you were just sort of sharing a little bit about how you help people to see their value, like how much they really do impact the experience for people. Can you share a time when you saw it really go well? Or was there a story that you would share to help people kind of see how they impact the experience?
0: I think there's a number of stories I could share. I think some of the stories that come to mind, even with, let's say, for example, the transporters, we were able to bring patients back to share with the staff themselves. You had this conversation with me. So, for example, there was this one transporter who had a chance to have the president of the hospital shadow with him. And she put on her sneakers and she put on the uniform and she was with him. And she was just kind of quiet, you know, just observing. And she came back and shared this story that there was this patient that didn't seem necessarily approachable. He looked angry, you know, he looked like there was a lot going on. And the transporter got down at eye level because the transporter was really tall and this patient was in a wheelchair and said, how are you today? And the patient said, wow, no one had stopped to ask me that. I appreciate your professionalism. You really brighten my day just by saying this. And the president herself, she was like, I may have been reluctant and afraid to address this patient because they seemed unapproachable. And the way in which this transporter was able to, it didn't matter how this patient looked didn't matter if they seemed like they weren't going to be willing to talk. That transporter knew the value of that dialogue, and it really did impact that patient in that way. Another example is right in the beginning of the pandemic, we were trying to figure out how we were going to connect patients and their loved ones because we couldn't have visitors. And so that was one of the most challenging times because we know that having your loved ones at the bedside is critical to wellness and, you know, healing and so on. And so we were trying to figure out what kind of technology we can use. And so, you know, we went through, do you use FaceTime? Do you use Zoom? You know, can we? And so we were able to get iPads to every single unit across the organization. And I had a patient who wrote back to me and she shared pictures. Her mom had passed away and her mom passed away on her actual birthday. And because it was end of life, the daughter was able to be there, but her siblings were everywhere and you can only have one person at end of life. And she shared with me the picture of them on Zoom. And she had typed out my sister so-and-so is in Illinois and this one is in Maryland and my brother is here and how they were all able to be with her mom at the end of life, just from this technology. And even though she had lost her mom and this was this very difficult story, the group that had to figure out the technology, had to make sure the iPads got out, had to make sure that everyone knew how to use them. Then you had nursing who had to administer them. You had the unit clerks that had to help with the process. It was this big group. And just that story was a great example of all hands on deck and look what it did for what was such a bad situation because you're losing your mom. But this woman took the time to say, you helped the experience. What was the most difficult time in our lives? The work that you do had an impact on us. And we were able to be with my mom.
1: The way technology has brought us closer together in some of these moments with like people in in different geographies. And I think, COVID, there are definitely some silver linings that have come out of COVID. And I think one is from a health system level is like, how do we help families that are spread out in like the diaspora to be able to really connect with patients while they're during their time of care? And I especially think about this as a, I used to live out in California, far away from my family. And I would think about, and my dad suffers from a chronic illness. And I would think about like how I wish I could be there. How would I get more involved and how difficult it was? And you can only fly in so many times over the course of, you know, a, a year. And that technology, I think has helped families feel so much safer in when their loved ones are in health systems and to be able to give somebody that, that moment at the end during sort of end of life is just, it's a beautiful thing. It really, it really is. It changes things for a family to be able to have that moment of closure. So, so that really is amazing. And have you seen that kind of perpetuate in light of sort of post COVID world?
0: Absolutely. I think that the iPads are still in use because even in that example, only one person could be at the bedside. But there are times where if someone's in Illinois or depending on like you just gave an example of California, I may not be able to get there fast enough. And so the technology is still being used. Another way in which I think it is really taken off is telemedicine, telehealth visits. And so now we've been able to bring the care to the patients and almost meet people where they are, you know, and, and access is really important. And you think about, you know, I learned this and me and one of our chief medical officer at Yale, we were talking a few weeks ago when, you know, I realized I couldn't get around with my ankle and, you know, you can't walk. And he was like, wow, just imagine the people who miss their appointments. A lot of times we dismiss, right? We're like, oh, you missed two appointments. We're going to dismiss you. And why we shouldn't, why we may need to think twice about that because of the reasons why someone may not be able to make it to their appointment. We have to think about all those different things. And I think it's really about understanding that and having empathy. And when we're making these decisions, being thoughtful about, The different shoes people are wearing, they're different. You may not be able to get there versus someone else who can. And even with thinking of the technology, and I remember when we were talking about FaceTime, for example, I'm like, everyone doesn't have an, you know, an eye product, right? And then I thought of my mom and my mom was 78 or seven, you know, she's 79 now. And I'm like, she wouldn't be able to use this device. And so even thinking about the ease and and, and what we chose as a tool, it's being that thoughtful. It's really understanding the full picture and everyone that we have a huge population of patients we serve from one end, right, of the spectrum to the other. And so we have to make sure that we're making decisions with all of that in mind so that no matter who you are, this could be useful, Right. And so, I think all of those things, my own experience, right, helped me think of these decisions. I remember being on the meetings, and I'm like, "I hope I'm not saying this too much because I would say to my colleagues like, "My mom is, and she wouldn't be able to use this, or she you know because you're
1: thinking of that too, and you know it's really powerful, I think, to think about when you started with sort of this the transporter who was kind of got to eye level with the patient, and the patient is not necessarily welcoming, as you said, and asking someone, how are you in a meaningful, deep way that the curiosity of the, of the questions when they come from a real place, how that creates moments for people to truly connect and promote healing and i think about what you're saying too with what your conversation with your cmo was where it's like people might be missing appointments and we now know anxiety is is just rampant now in the united states and how anxiety screenings are now a natural part of doctors appointments and i think about for people who you know may have anxiety issues or access issues or transport issues or whatever it is that's preventing them from being able to go to that appointment and get that care. And so how do we ask the right questions? And you were kind of sharing that earlier, like the having curiosity and asking meaningful questions so that we can kind of know where to go and how to help people.
0: Exactly. I think a lot of the work we do in healthcare and what we thought experience was, was more clinical than it actually is. Right. And so, you know, you think about the skills we have and it's not about that. It's the ability to really connect so that you build that trust so that the patient really will tell you what they're worried about. You know, we have tools. So one of the things that we have recently, used is what we call like patient story. And it's really the ability inside the patient's chart where they can see their test results and so on to like add things about them. I have, you know, have two kids, I have a dog, I'm, I'm afraid of spiders. I, you know, or I'm afraid of hospitals or whatever it is so that when your caregiver is coming to provide care, They are aware of those other things and those social aspects because that's really a part of that journey of making you better. You know, because once I discharge you, if you don't have access or you're worried about these things, you're going to end up being readmitted. Right. And so, number one, having the tools to be able to ask those questions, get that information, but it's also our patients and our people being comfortable sharing that information and being able to ask in a way that's genuine. And that comes from that ability to show empathy. I remember when, you know, being on my stomach in that urgent care, one of the questions I, I started to ask, cause I'm, I'm on, this, on this table and I'm like, this is ridiculous. And I wanted to say, have any of you ever broken something? I started to ask because I knew that they had it because I could tell they had it because of the lack of compassion. And so I think one of the number one things that we've been focused on in educating our staff is the ability to put yourself in someone's shoes and say, what if this was my mother? What if this was my brother, my sister, my loved one? Or how would you feel if this was you? I think those are those simple questions that we think people know to ask themselves, but they just don't.
1: Yes. And it's also when you personally experience something, your power to be empathetic just becomes so much stronger. So I think about your journey and how you got to this moment and all of the things that sort of happened from that accident to, you know, even as recently as your own experience with your ankle, you really internalize that to become your fuel. And it informs the way that you do this work. And I think that's why also you're so effective because you look at it holistically and you have that empathy. And how do we help other people who maybe haven't been in that exact moment to have the empathy that they really need to make you feel comfortable. And I'm saying you as a patient to be vulnerable and share what your concerns are in that moment. Because you definitely going back to you being on your belly in that, in that, instance, you were not feeling safe. You did not feel you could ask the questions you probably wanted to. And think about someone who doesn't have the education and the background and all the experience that you have. So it creates a really a not equitable dynamic between provider and patient. And that, I think, is something that we're always trying to, to lift.
0: Absolutely. I think one of the important components of this work is really having the patient voice be a part of the work that we do. Almost in the way that I shared my story, there are so many stories that need to be heard. And so one of the things that I'm proud about at our organization is we have what we call patient family advisory councils. And on these councils, there are patients themselves or their loved ones, and they are actively a part of decision making. They get a chance to look at the technology and vet some of the tools that we implement that we may think is amazing. But we need to have our patients, right? Our loved ones, the people who with impacts tell us it's amazing. And a lot of times we don't have it right until we bring it to these groups to say, is this easy? We have this app now, it's like a wayfinding app. And, you know, that was a perfect example of you know, bringing, bringing it in front of these advisors to say, is this as cool as we think it is? You know, because of course we know how challenging it is when we're trying to navigate the world, even even in our everyday. So imagine when you're in pain or you're going to visit a loved one and so on, but really having the input from the people who will experience these things, that's key. And so I think that is one of the best ways to help us through this journey, is really asking, is this great? Does this work? Will this help you with signage? You know, I remember we were working on signage, and I think you may know that workplace violence became a thing no matter where you were, if you're in the air, airlines, you know, whatever industry. And so we were working on signage about how to make sure that our patients understood that this needs to be a peaceful environment. And at the first pass of it, we may have had like a fist with the X on it. And it's like, you know, our patients told us that is not what we would want to see. It might make us feel like that's an aggressive environment. Can we flip it and show more of a peaceful and that we're promoting peace? And so it's just little things like that, that the decision makers have to be diverse and it has to be an array, right? And uh, of all these different representatives. And one of the things that we focused on this past year was the diversity of these councils and how important it was for these council representatives to really represent the community that we serve. So it can't just be one group and the people that, you know, maybe have more time to sit on these committees and more willing, but how do we go out and get the the people that may have a challenge showing up But we need your voice, too. And so that has been a campaign also to make sure we have representation from all backgrounds, ages, religions, sexual orientation. We need everyone's voice.
1: I think about our PFAC at Wambi. So, you know, as a tech company, we obviously only with health systems and we have a patient and family council. And when we ask them things, I'm just thinking, it just, it reminds me so much of what you said about the signage. Like, what are the words that we're using? You know, and what does it mean? To a family or patient who's sitting, you know, in a room waiting for their care provider to come in, and they're looking at the door. And what does that signage need to say? And I really love how you shared flipping it to the positive, making them feel safe. All of these things are so so critically important. And I think about something that would just seem so basic, but that RPAC shared with us, which was, you know, when I'm looking for who I'm going to recognize within Wombi within the platform. I don't really know what telemetry is. Like, I don't know what some of these units mean. I know what they tell me the unit is that's on the whiteboard. I know what I think it's called, but I can't find people that way. And of course we have other ways of doing it, but that was one of the filters and, and it was a great aha of like, of course we need to be really looking at the language. The cl- Like what are people really calling this place in different areas? Like if we say ED, ER, emergency, like we need to say what the patients are understanding.
0: You are so right. That's why you heard me say patient family advisory council. I wasn't sure. Like some places don't call it PFAC. We call it PFAC, by the way. But you are so right. Really, you know, one of the things we teach is try not to use medical jargon. It's so simple because we just get used to our acronyms and our words and our patients feel left out that's what that really is about. We want to make sure that our patients feel included in the decision-making and in this journey. And they will simply feel left out because it's, we're not speaking language that they understand.
1: And so that is the why. Inclusivity, curiosity, resourcefulness. You have shared so much today, Tina. And so now I will say we have to take another two minutes together to go into our speed round of questions where our listeners get to know more about Tina outside of Yale. So Tina, I'm going to start I'll start with a softball. Tina, where where can you be found on a typical Sunday?
0: Home watching Netflix, binge watching something or at a sports event or dance class. I have a daughter and a son, one who dances and one who is amazing at basketball. So it's one of those places. Love
1: that. I, what are you binge watching on Netflix right now?
0: I've been watching something called Hello, Veronica. So I like a lot of crime, crime stories, suspense, thrillers. And it's funny that, you know, when it it when it when shows you like 90, 99% your thing, um, but all of them are the same. And my husband, like, this is pretty much the same thing. You got us watching the same thing. But I love that. All of them. You,
1: you ever heard of You. You was amazing to me. It was creepy, but amazing. That's way too scary for me, just so you know. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And that algorithm, it's really effective. I agree with you. Like the 99%, I'm like, I definitely am going to love this. (laughs) What would you say less than 10% of your work family knows about you? They don't know that I'm shy. So they think you're extroverted at work, but really it's it's a work in progress for you. You're really shy at the core.
0: I am really shy and I'm really an introvert. I prefer to be home watching Netflix. No, I prefer to be, you know, I'm more of a homebody. I'm the person who in a room prefers to be in the back, but they would never feel that or know that.
1: Is that something that you've been cognizant of sort of over time of becoming even sort of more so? I mean, I think about I have actually thought about this before and have spoken to some friends who are executive leaders too, and they're, and they're introverts by nature and how they share that it, it's it's work for them because being a leader, you do have to be out in the forefront so many times. And so sometimes you kind of, your inner struggle with sort of feeling a little bit more hesitant to go into that position or that environment.
0: Absolutely. It is a thing, right? I had a I had a leader a few years back who was like, you got to know, know how to work the room. And it's really important in these roles. But to your point, it's not something you necessarily do naturally. And so it's just a conscious thing. I think that when you're in your comfortable spaces and you're talking about work and things like that, it comes a bit more naturally, but I think having the balance of when you're not in these spaces, having that quiet time, those moments help balance it out for the times that you have to work the room. You have to be able to connect. It's almost like being the governor, right? You know, you're shaking hands and that's right. Kissing babies. Kissing babies. <laughs> exactly.
1: Oh, that, that's great. Okay. And final question, Tina. If you could have a superpower, what would it be?
0: I've asked myself this question and I almost think being invisible and the reason why is because you have the power of observation and being able to learn without people knowing you're there. And, you know, I've actually had this conversation with people and they're like, but I don't know if I'd want to know what people said. And if they say something about you, would it be discouraging? But I just think it's so powerful to be able to sit back and know things and have that extra information as you navigate life, right? Or meetings or the journey. You have that extra power of knowing what people are thinking or feeling where they may not tell you but you know it because you were invisible and you learned it that way.
1: I love it. And might I say, maybe you already have a little bit of that superpower within you as the power of observation, you know, not just reflecting your introverted nature, but I think just the way you see the world. And, and that came out so many times today with this conversation. And thank you so much for sharing that with our listeners. Thank you. Okay. Did I miss anything, Tina, that you wanted to chat about?
0: No, I just want to thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for this platform and the ability to share our story. I think one of the things I'm most passionate about is being able to pay it forward. And I think in just being able to share, right, it's going to help. Even if it helps one person, it's worth the time. It's worth the discussion. And so I think that's what this is all about. It's not just about us. It's bigger than us. And it's about helping others. And so I think that's really
1: important. And I'll tell you, I was at one of our clients in at University of Miami, and I was like walking around with the chief nurse and some of the nurses were like, that's Rebecca from Moments Move Us. So a lot of their nurses are listening to this. And it turns out most of our listeners are nurses or like young aspiring executives. We do have like some executive leaders too, of course, but like, I love that because I love hearing about folks that are out there delivering care at the front line, aspiring in their career, and they're learning from your stories because that's that's why this has been, I think, successful. Just people like you sharing sort of the inner inner workings of how you got to this. And, and it's amazing. I've learned so much. I loved, this is my privilege to do this. So anyway, I'm so appreciative of your time and just your generosity of spirit in doing this with me.
0: Thank you so much.
1: The words we say and actions we take have power and can have far-reaching impact. So let's use them intentionally. I'm Rebecca Corin. Thanks for listening to Moments Move Us. Remember, when you put people first, your actions can move others in unexpected ways. Be sure to follow wherever you get your audio.